You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the ever-merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Monday, the 20th of November, 2023. The time is 7.03 a.m. And you're listening to Daniel Zia. Dr. Shaquille Ahmed and Imam Usman Manan live from the South London studios of Voice of Islam. As is the norm, we have brought two topics uh, for you today. So the first one, which we shall start around 7.30 a.m., is about COVID, back to COVID and the changing nature of COVID. So we shall delve into a discussion on that. And from about 8.20 uh, onwards, we shall talk about AI that is artificial intelligence and its potential risks both to education as well as to other sectors. Uh, that's something that is very topical these days as well. And on that note, um, assalamu alaikum, gentlemen. Assalamu alaikum and peace be on you and all the listeners. Jazakallah, assalamu alaikum, uh, uh, Imam Manan, how are you? Assalamu alaikum, peace be on you. How, were you. how was your weekend, gentlemen? Oh, it's been good. A little bit of family time, walk in the park. And some sniffles. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Is there a park around you where you live? Oh, Richmond Park. Oh, Richmond Park. One of the park. greatest oh, things oh, in oh, London. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you're lucky to, to be living close to Richmond Park. It is, yes. it is indeed lovely. Right. Okay. Um, let me start with the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. Um, uh, and as I uh, mentioned earlier, this is a live show, so please do call in at zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. Should you like to contribute, you can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Right. So, um, just two days away from his autumn statement, Jeremy um, Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, appears to be clearly happy to stoke the newspapers' talk of exactly which cuts he will be announcing on Wednesday, quoting his latest announcement that everything is on the table. The I newspaper points out that tax cuts for businesses remain more likely than those for general taxpayers. But the Daily Mail is still keen to believe that income tax or national insurance may be cut, with its headline asking, are we finally on the brink of a real tax cut? The Daily Express has a firm warning that whatever Jeremy Hunt chooses to announce, it must also come along with him honouring the triple lock agreement on pensions. And that will require an 8.5% increase of the state pension. The paper says that if he uses tax cuts to get the economy fizzing, but does not keep the long-term promise on pensions, it will cause uproar. The Daily Mirror's investigations editor, Nick Somerland, has been looking into the rents that are changed for seven luxury apartments owned by Jeremy Hunt and his wife, and discovers that one of them saw a rise of 18%. The paper does acknowledge that Mr. Hunt has said that the, he donates all profits to charity, but still wants to the contrast with his plea for the general public to show restraint in their demand for pay rises. Israel on the brink of hostage agreement is the lead headline for the Daily Telegraph as it details the latest developments in negotiations between Hamas and Israeli leadership. The paper quotes optimistic U.S. officials who are brokering the talks and says they believe that only minor details remain before it is announced that dozens of women and children will be released in exchange for a five-day pause in fighting. Qatar, which is hosting the negotiations between Israel and Hamas, is making equally positive comments, according to the Times. 
It quotes the country's Prime Minister Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdurrahman al-Thani as saying there are just practical and logistical challenges left to be overcome. The paper also pictures comedian and presenter Russell Brand as it reports he's been questioned by the Met Police over allegations of historical sex offences. The Brand development provides the lead story for Metro, which points out that it comes two months after the bombshell TV investigation Russell Brand, Russell Brand in plain sight. But the paper says it is unclear whether detectives were speaking to him about claims in the documentary or about others that have been reported since then. Brand has previously denied the claims. Nukes up minutes from disaster is the dramatic headline at the front of The Sun. The paper does explain that this is not the current prognosis as it tells the story of a decades-old Royal Navy nuclear sub complete with Trident II doomsday missiles which started sinking towards its crush depth when the submarine, where the submarine implodes for uh, from water pressure, but was saved just in time. The main picture of the front of the Financial Times is of election officials in Argentina during the presidential vote yesterday. Provisional results suggest it has been won by right-wing libertarian outsider Javier Millet. The paper describes him as a former television commentator known for his furious rants against the country's political elite. So those were the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. A reminder of the two topics uh, that we shall be covering. So the first topic, which we shall start at 7.30, is about the changing nature of COVID. And the second topic, which we shall start around 8.20 a.m., is about artificial intelligence and the potential risks um, it poses both to education and to other sectors. Please do join in both of these discussions by calling us at 0208-687-7878. A very quick break now, and when we come back, we will continue discussion on what's happening around the world as well as what's happening within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Do stay tuned. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. The time is 7:10 a.m. and you're listening to Daniel Zia, Dr. Shaquille Ahmed, as well as Imam Usman Minan. Uh, Dr. Shaquille, uh, when we were on the break, we were talking about uh, a lot of activities that, um, sports activities that um, uh, take place within the Ahmadiyya Muslim Women's Association. 
um, what are those activities? And you know, it's it's quite a, 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 a quite different, quite opposite to the general stereotype uh, attached and associated with uh, Muslim women in general. Um, do they? Uh, do they even like sports? I mean, <laughs> or, or should I should I start off with the question? I mean, are they are they allowed to be uh, in sports? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you are right that there is a general misconception yeah. that the Muslim women are very housebound. They don't have their individual activities or individual interest pursuits, which is in fact uh, almost 180 degrees to what the truth is. Yeah. Now, speaking about the Ahmadiyya Muslim Association that we belong to and this radio station belongs to, uh, our spiritual leader, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, he has spoken about this point in some of his responses and he's been very clear that Look, if you if you observe the data on the Ahmadiyya Muslim women mm-hmm. around the world, firstly, that you will find that the the literacy and the educational rate or even right. postgraduate studies in many countries is higher amongst women than in we- men. <laughs> mm. Secondly, they have their own individual women's organization, mm. the Lajna Malla, which has uh, complete autonomy in organizing their own activities. They hold their religious, spiritual, educational, as well as recreational activities. Mm. And your point was about sports and those kind of activities. (coughs) And uh, what I do know is, for example, that they have uh, international sports tournaments. So Amadi women from around the world would have been training around the year and then gather mostly in UK, because this is the center of the Khilafat, um, to have those international tournaments. And uh, the the one tournament that I do know that volleyball and netball uh, international events are coming very soon. Right. Similarly, I'm aware uh, of another event, because my daughter is joining them, is that they're going out on a weekend of activities in Gloucestershire, somewhere in rural countryside. So is my daughter, actually two of my daughters. Yeah. Are joining the same event? Absolutely, yeah. Right, yeah. and th- when I was looking at their program, it's full of activities, Absolutely. outdoor as well as indoor, yeah. and uh, beautiful countryside in a very nice mansion house. So uh, women do educational as well as physical health activities like any women should. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, no, thank you. Absolutely great point. Uh, and yes, so so I know uh, that my daughters are, are really, really looking forward to uh, to going uh, to that event, and they they made sure that they were fully available, uh, despite their they're both in uni at the moment, and uh, they wanted to make sure that they uh, their studies in no way coincided, or or that I had any excuse not to <laughs> <laughs> uh, not to give them permission to go. But uh, no, they they are absolutely really, really looking forward to. It. And and you're right, it's um, uh, the um, Extracurricular activities, or sports activities, is something which really enriches you, and uh, I think it's a basic human right. Every person, every individual, every human being, man, of course, uh, should have a right, and uh, and they do certainly have that right. And again, a point well made. Uh, I think His Holiness Hazrat Mr. Masoori, may Allah be his helper, our current um, leader, uh, mentioned um, a few months ago. I think that uh, the literacy rate amongst Ahmadi women is about ninety nine percent. So, um, yeah, they are highly educated and they are enlightened and uh, uh, they certainly have um, uh, 
and and shall I add, they're also liberated uh, uh, in the sense uh, that they actually, in, in the real sense of the word, should I say. Right. Um, Imam Usman, if I can um, come to you. Uh, so we're talking about uh, headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. Anything that uh, caught your eye? Um, uh, yes, uh, also just a quick update. Um, uh, as you also mentioned in the headlines that uh, Israel has found some evidence that there is a there is a there's a tunnel under the Al Shifa hospital which they have been bombing and um, so they say there there is uh, it, there is a 55 meter long terror tunnel 10 meters deep underneath um, and they have some footage also uh, for this tunnel and um, the military says that the footage clearly proves that numerous buildings in the hospital's com- complex are used by Hamas as cover for terrorist activities. And Hamas has repeatedly denied these allegations as have medical staff working at Gaza City's uh, largest hospital. Uh, at a media briefing, a spokesperson said um, the IDF had uh, concrete evidence Hamas took some hostages to Al-Shifa Hospital and they claim they have some CCTV footage. Um, if you uh, know, there has also been a... This is quite old now. There was a video which was uh, released by the IDF. Uh, they went through the hospital showing that the CCTV camera, cameras have been covered. They found some uh, contraband and uh, various other things. Uh, Daniel Hagari accused Hamas of murdering 19-year-old uh, Corporal Noah Marciano, a hostage inside the hospital, and earlier, the Qatari Prime Minister said only very minor obstacles remain to other Israeli hostages being released. And the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza says that uh, the toll of the, uh, the the death toll has uh, reached around 13,000 people in Gaza. Uh, and Israel began attacking Gaza after Hamas fighters crossed the border on 7th October, uh, which killed um, on that day almost 1,200 Israelis. Um, so this is just a quick update on the situation in Gaza. Right, right. And, uh, a very quick word on that. So I'm uh, reading uh, this um, this morning's Guardian uh, edition, and uh, uh, they do say that or stress that uh, the claims of a vast tunnel complex have yet to be verified, uh, which which was the reason Israeli army gave uh, of actually uh, launching that attack on the hospital so the, so those uh, that particular network uh, which is supposed to be the headquarter of all the Hamas activities yet to be found and um, uh, it also mentions uh, so this is the article appearing in uh, in Guardian today and it's written by Betton uh, McKernan and uh, uh, she mentions also that um, as Israeli forces drew closer to the hospital this week, at least 40 people, including eight premature babies, died because of a lack of electricity to operate life-saving equipment, equipment such as incubators and dialysis machines. Uh, this according to the United Nations. Um, and then she adds that the, the desperate struggle to keep the remaining 300 or so vulnerable patients at Al-Shifa alive as the UN attempts to evacuate them southwards comes as Israel has said it is expanding its operations to destroy Hamas to areas south of Gaza City, raising fears for the hundreds of thousands of civilians who've uh, sought refuge there after being told by the IDF that it would be safer. Yeah, so um, uh, again, uh, uh, Dr. Shaquille, uh, pretty pretty horrific what's happening in um, 
in Israel at the moment, in, in Gaza in, in, at the moment. Yes, it is definitely by any standards a very painful yeah. situation. Uh, atrocities have been committed uh, from both sides, it looks like. But the suffering of the Palestinians is uh, far more. Mm. Um, and um, uh, again, I would come back to this principle that uh, peace and lasting peace is very closely linked to justice. You know, if our opinions, if our taking sides or if our military aids or financial support or political lobbying is not balanced and it's not just, then lasting peace does not happen, mm. does not occur. Absolutely. And that's the Quranic principle. And that, I think, is important for all parties to keep in mind not just locally, not just the Israelis, not just the Hamas or the Gaza government, right. not just those countries who are around them and not just uh, countries from around the world that are involved there. Hmm. It's for every one of us Correct. to recognize the importance of this principle. Otherwise, we are heading towards a bigger and bigger <coughs> disaster. The wars are spreading. Yeah. You know, in my lifetime, I've seen wars increase in the world, suffering of the people increase in the world, international uh, asylum seekers and refugee numbers have increased around the world. Countries have, cities have been bombed to dust. Right. This is the last three, four decades of right. our world. Hmm. So we've got to seriously think about it if we want to have a more peaceful, <coughs> brotherly, uh, congenial kind of uh, atmosphere around the world. Absolutely, and, and you're, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, it's about the lack of justice um, in the society in general, and uh, and people realizing that there is lack of justice, and and, and hence this the huge amount of uh, of unrest around the world. Um, and and you're right, whether or not I mean, look at the conflict in um, in Europe at the moment, the war in Ukraine between Ukraine and Russia, which is also a hot war, um, just because it's not. Uh, it doesn't get wall-to-wall -wall coverage anymore on the media. Doesn't mean that the war is not happening. Mm. Uh, that is a hot war that's happening uh, around the corner from us. And then, you know, there is this this conflict, which unfortunately also, <coughs> you know, seems to be spreading. As you say, the wars are are, are spreading. So there is every uh, risk of um, other actors joining um, this particular conflict in the Middle East. And that will only spell disaster um, for for Middle East and uh, and the wider world. Mm. Um, I mean, the the yeah, it's already spreading. I mean, you see war, <coughs> you see war in uh, Ukraine. There's uh, also some kind of war going on in Sudan, in Congo, in uh, Palestine. Obviously, Palestine yeah. is kind of the highlight right now. Even though somebody was just just telling me yesterday that. Uh, Behind the behind all the news, there's a lot of ha happening in Ukraine which people are missing. I mean, Russia and Ukraine are on on the fighting again. So the media is such a powerful tool that it can divert the attention anywhere. Correct. And um, uh, yeah, so wars are already happening, and civil wars or other disputes because of injustices. And uh, as Dr. Shkiel mentioned, that obviously he, he has experienced all this in his life, and he's seen them increase. And uh, this is also like a sign, um, which is a sign of the end of the world in Islam, that when the promised Messiah, who every almost every religion is awaiting, 
when he will come the situation of the world will be which which we see today which is like wars uh, injustice uh, the worst atrocities the worst um, a kind of uh, criminal activities are being done mm. um, abusers sexual abusers everything is peaking is going up is going on the high this is the time we uh, we expect a, a a promised messiah if any is to come is now and the, as as the hamdi muslim community believe that that time has already come the promised messiah has already come 120 130 years ago uh, which was hazrat mirza ghulam ahmed Uh, peace be upon him who came in Qadiyah in India as a prophet and that's why we have this uh, radio channel as well to tell people that to come back to the true teachings of Islam to the true teachings of humanity which is about peace and justice and uh, what, what we see in this in the world today everywhere is uh, completely against um, you know what um, not just Islam teaches but what almost every religion teaches peace and uh, you know uh, humanity that's a good point yeah yeah mm-hmm. absolutely 100% so yeah uh, the basic fundamental teaching of every religion is peace love and and recognition of your creator first of all and then uh, you know spreading peace and love um, uh, around you uh, no religion um, uh, teaches uh, wars and uh, um, uh, and depriving other communities so it's a uh, but unfortunately some people do take some verses out of the, the text uh, whether that's Torah or the Quran uh, or even others out of context and they use it to their political advantage uh, mm. to fan the flames mm. of fire and um, of hatred as well and that's what we're seeing unfortunately mm. everywhere in the world uh, especially in the in the Middle East I mean yeah if you look at social media it's just full of those uh, uh those very inflammatory things unfortunately to that i would say that misuse of religion or holy scripture is not a criticism of the scripture of course not it's the one who's misusing correct like any mm. other th- like situation. anything else yes. absolutely you can't blame religion <laughs> because yes, exactly. it's being it's being used as a tool to uh to to somebody's advantage well uh, point well made uh, dr keel right okay uh we shall now take um a very quick break um time to start our almost time sh- to start our first topic which is about um uh what's uh, what's our first topic usman ansa would you like to remind our audience yes uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll be talking about uh, the covid um yeah. and uh, you know if you had about the long covid as well Correct. so uh covid is is quite old news but um it's it's still there it's still a reality and uh, it will remain like this so we will discuss what we um how is covid affecting people um in in today's time after all um all the advancement we have reached all the vaccines um why is covid still a problem if it is so yes that's what we will be discussing the changing nature of covid and uh, uh how people are dealing with it and i think we also have some guests We yes, we indeed, and we are. Uh, we look forward to speaking to those. So please do stay tuned. We shall be back right after uh, this quick break and these messages, and we will delve right into the first topic after the break, which is about the changing nature of COVID. Do stay tuned.
أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. So for for me in 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 my life, what I did was, I said to um. It came to a point in my life where, I said. I need spirituality. Right. I need to know about there must be more to life than just working, getting up in the morning, going to work at nine o'clock, coming home at five o'clock, going to bed, waking up the next day and doing the same thing over and over again. There must be more to life than just eating food and taking pleasure from a meal. Sure. There must be more to life than drinking a latte yeah. and taking pleasure in a latte. Yeah. And all of these thoughts take you towards spirituality. And when you know spirituality, that is to come to Allah. So, so that was how it started. But then what really, you know, practically for me, what happened was, I said to the, the various friends that I had at the time, you know, I believe in, I want to know about God, yeah. whether or not God exists. What would you advise me? So I spoke to a Christian, right. I spoke to a Buddhist, I spoke to a Muslim, right. I spoke to a Hindu a, Hindu, a little bit, yeah. and also to an Ahmadi Muslim as well. Right. And they all right. gave me the same advice. They all said, Allah, we believe in God, we pray, and God answers prayers. Sure. So what was very nice is all the different religions essentially gave the same advice. Right. When I did that, then when I prayed, then Allah answered my prayers. Right. And I prayed for the first time genuinely from my heart. And Allah says that whenever the supplicant prays to him, then he answers those prayers. Yeah. And Allah by the grace of by the grace of Allah Almighty, then He answered my prayers, and I believed in Him for the first time. And from there, I continued those conversations, and I said to the Christian, "What do you believe?" I said to the Muslim, "What do you believe?" And to the Hindu, the same, and to the Ahmadi Muslim. And essentially, to believe in Islam, Ahmadiyat means you believe in all of Jesus' teachings, all of Krishna's teachings, all of Buddha's teachings, but you have them clarified by the Holy Quran, right. and then you accept the Prophet or the Imam Mahdi, who's been sent by Allah in, in subservience to the Holy Prophet mm. So to, to become an Ahmadi Muslim means that you actually accept everything that all of the others do, but you are the most submissive to Allah because you accept a Prophet that has come so recently that to make that decision shows, or inshallah it shows to Allah that I'm willing to follow you and not just my culture, not just my society, but I'm willing to accept the one that you've sent in my, in my time, in my generation. Sure. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio, broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. The time is 7.30 and we are back as promised with the first segment, which is about the changing nature of COVID. Uh, Imam Usman Minan, uh, tell us more. Yes, as I think most of the listeners know that COVID is still around and the new research suggests that anxiety over COVID continues and in recent weeks it appears to have uh, intensified with you know the internet um, 
Internet searches for COVID having shot up with news of a new variant and a rise in hospital admissions. But uh, there is plenty of evidence to suggest the virus is on its way to becoming just another respiratory bug to uh, contend with. Alongside flu and others uh, maybe lesser known, such as uh, Sincetil virus, RSV, rhinovirus and uh, adenovirus. Uh, So coronavirus is just one of um, those things. And uh, um, the changing nature of COVID, um, Sally, who used to enjoy frequent travel and golf, now in her mid-70s and vaccinated against COVID, has altered her lifestyle, avoiding plane travel and indoor socializing due to perceived risks. Uh, The research uh, which was conducted indicated ongoing anxiety over COVID, intensifying with news of new variants and increased hospital admissions during the last month, despite evidence suggesting the virus is becoming a common um, bug alongside flu and others. And this month, the records seem to be normal again. Uh, and obviously, with the winter approaching, uh, the, you can maybe get mixed up with the with the symptoms of flu and COVID. Uh, you don't know which one you have. Um, but um, uh, some experts like Professor Hunter uh, Kucharski and Professor Mike um Tildesley express optimism about COVID becoming seasonal but remain cautious, noting the importance of inter- uh, interpreting data accurately and avoiding unnecessary alarm. And the changing nature of COVID raises questions about testing, with experts questioning its necessity, particularly if the individual wouldn't change their behavior based on the test result. Uncertainty and uh, lingering uh, a worry about COVID's impact on daily uh, daily life persists, influenced by unique historical associations and social cues. Right. Thank you very much for that uh, introduction. Um, uh, Dr. Shaquille, uh, your thoughts on uh, uh, on the impact of, uh, of COVID? I mean, this is something that uh, uh, that has been much talked about. There was um, uh, there was even a suggestion, I remember, a couple of years ago that there will be an annual shot given to all the entire population. And then that was, I think, reduced to vulnerable people. So um, is it is it something that really should should we be be concerned about it? Um, to be honest, this not being my area of specialism, sure. um, I don't feel I have the authority to have a strong view but I can have a view. I know that in some parts of the world, newer uh, vaccines have come up as the fourth booster, etc., and they're being made mandatory for health stuff. So that's one thing that is happening. Um, the, the, The morbidity and mortality caused by COVID pandemic was unmatchable in the recent history. Yes, there have been other in the, in a bit uh, prior history, but recently this was a huge shock to the humanity around the world. And that is why I think that scientifically and socially, we would be in our right to be cautious, as has been mentioned in the introduction by some of the leading authorities, that um, even though it looks like that it could become like an ordinary seasonal respiratory bug. But the data cannot just conclude that with uh, some kind of definacy yet. 
Thank you. So let's now go to uh, somebody who is an expert, um, uh, who certainly is uh, uh, has a specialty in medicine, and uh, and that's Dr. Shabir Bhatti, who is a practicing GP and works in Aldershot, England. Um, he's been practicing medicine since 1978. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the breakfast show, Dr. Bhatti. Walaikum assalam wa rahmatullah and peace be upon all of you as well. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Betty. So, yes, so uh, my, first, my same question to you that I asked Dr. Shakil, do you think we should be concerned about, about COVID? Uh, there has been a lot of talk about COVID over the last few years and there were suggestions, as I mentioned earlier, that there will be um, annual jabs required. Um, but then I think that was uh, something that was reduced just to vulnerable people. Uh, should we really be talking about COVID? Well, we need to talk about it uh, to some extent, but I must say that it was not. It it now is not as serious as it used to be when it uh, started off in late 2020 and early 2021. Um, it has modified itself a little bit, so it is a less of a serious disease as it was before. But you see, the thing is that we don't know what will happen with the next mutation of the virus. Mm. And it could uh, just spread like wildfire again. Well, it is still spreading like wildfire, but it's much milder in intensity at the moment. So I think we should still be concerned about it. Um, right. We are still having deaths from Corona, uh, COVID at the moment. Um, there are around, I think, about 30 deaths a week from it. 30 to say 50 to 30 deaths a week from it. So, right. Um, we can't ignore it completely. I'm afraid. Sure. And what changes have you noticed in people's attitudes towards COVID-19 in terms of their anxieties about it since it began? Well, their anxieties are much less now. Before, everyone was very, very concerned because it was a new virus that was on the block. And we did not really know what the um, effects of it would be. And to be honest, at the beginning, it was a very serious virus. And people used to get into the hospital and half of them wouldn't survive. Um, and we had deaths, you know, of about... 60,000 a month from it. Um, the total number of people who died from it is still about 200, uh, 232, 235 thereabouts is the figure. Um, but it was very serious and everyone was isolating and there was in, uh, government imposed restrictions upon So that generated a lot of anxiety. But uh, then the virus mutated and it became a bit, a bit weaker. And its manifestations are also changed and weaker. Uh, you no longer get into um, hospital with it, though, as I said, pointed out earlier, they're still having admission from COVID on a daily basis and about uh, 50 people die a week from it. Um, but that's all over the UK, by the way. Um, but the anxiety level has now gone down, especially when the restrictions on the masks was lifted by the government. So people are not as anxious as they were before, 
and they're not frightened of mixing as they were mixing before. So even if you go outside now to the shops or to trans- public transport, you, fi- you hardly find anyone wearing a mask. Whereas uh, a year, uh, 18 months ago, it was almost universal that everyone was wearing a mask. So that's a, a measure of the anxiety that people have at the moment that uh, it's much less than it used to be. Dr. Patti, the, the stat that you've just mentioned, 60 people still dying a week around the UK. Uh, do we know the um, uh, the age group of, of these individuals? Do we have any stat around that? We do not know the age group. Uh, we, we can find out the age group, but it's usually, the, uh, they, they are actually all age groups, but they are a, a particular category. Mm-hmm. So it's usually the obese people or the people who have got uh, immuno, uh, comp- uh, they are immunocompromised in some way, right. or they are diabetics who are immunocompromised. So mm-hmm. it's those that group which is affected, and obviously the elderly are more affected because they are immunocompromised much more, um, and the older age group is usually more affected because obesity is more in them. So children are less affected unless they have got a, a, a pre-existing condition like leukemia or something like that. Mm. Uh, Dr. Bhatti, in your opinion, uh, have the last few years brought about any changes in the nature of COVID-19 or um, why, why is it still news? Why are still 60 people a week dying from it? Yeah, there are uh, let me just clarify that of those who die from it, around 50, of those who die for it, from it, uh, with mm-hmm. COVID, they, they, that's the number that on the death certificate it says COVID. Okay. But there are some people, they die off it and some people who die with it, mm-hmm. if you see the difference. Yes. So the people who die from COVID is about 70% of that figure that I mentioned, about 30 20 to 30 people per week. Mm-hmm. And the others, they die because they also had, they had other things like heart attacks or lung infections or emphysema and COVID was just a, a coincidental feature in their death. So the, the nature of the virus has, you know, changed. We used to have deaths which used to be, you know, uh, about two or three thousand a week at the height of the pandemic. And now it's down to about four or 50 or thereabouts. So there's a big difference. And it's no longer news um, as it was before. People, more people die from um, heart attacks or accidents than they do die from COVID at the moment. Mm-hmm. So it's much less intense at, the, at this stage uh, and the anxiety level is reduced, and the virus has also changed. At the beginning, when it started, the virus would affect the lungs more specifically, and you couldn't, it, could, it would cause inflammation of the lungs, so you wouldn't be able to exchange enough oxygen, um, and the, the lungs became very stiff. And if you remember correctly, you know, there was, uh, if you still remember what happened in the beginning of the pandemic, there was a a sense that the taste uh, was dampened and the sense of smell was lost. And that was quite common. 
Yes. Now those symptoms are much, much reduced and COVID presents more as a flu-like illness with uh, even fever is not com- uh, common, but fatigue and tiredness and brain fog is more common now compared mm. to the loss of taste or uh, smell. So it has changed. It has attenuated, which means that as the virus changes, it weakens in its uh, um, uh, presentation. So it has, uh, it's not as vicious as it used to be before. So that's why it's less news now. And people are now beginning to think that it's just like the seasonal flu. Mm. So uh, with, with the winter approaching, uh, can you tell us some of, some of the differences in the symptoms where people can identify if this is a flu or a COVID, um, COVID-19? There is going to be little difference in general between the two, apart from the fact that uh, you will find possibly more fatigue with um, the COVID virus. Um, And you may have uh, a little more congestion and runny nose with with the flu virus, which is relatively less with the COVID virus. But cough is not uh, as important a feature as it used to be in the past. The, most of the presentations, I wouldn't say most, I'd say a lot of the presentations of COVID at the moment do present with a dry cough. Mm-hmm. But that's not a prominent thing anymore. Um, the flu virus is also very similar. You get the sore throat, and uh, but usually there's a fever with the, with the flu virus, uh, a mild fever. Um, that's not necessarily universally true with the COVID virus. It could present completely without symptoms. It could present with a little bit of fatigue and tiredness, uh, or it could present with uh, um, respiratory symptoms, which are much more serious. As I said, you know, there are uh, 50, uh, average of 50 uh, deaths per week of co- from COVID uh, still. But it's much less, and I think flu will overtake that in the winter months very easily because death from flu go up in winter quite a lot. Yes, as we understand it, it's I think this this uh, drop of figures is due to the vaccines. Um, what's your opinion, or what's your, um, you know, your your since you're the expert, what's uh, uh, what is the real reason? Is it the vaccines which have uh, stopped COVID, or what were the other factors like uh, face masks and people taking caution? Well, I think the, va- uh, the vaccines have helped considerably. Um, we There are statistics that show that at least uh, 75% of the population has had at least one coronavirus uh, vaccine. Mm. And uh, uh, just a few percentages less than that, about 68 to 9% have had both vaccines, two vaccines. So that gives you fair deal of immunity and that immunity we we weren't sure how long that immunity would last but it seems to last more than a few months nearly a year in some cases but the important thing is that uh, the the habits that people have formed of washing their hands and of masking themselves up even though they're masking less or avoiding um uh, gatherings has helped in uh, reducing the incidence of the virus. So, as you mentioned at the earlier stages, the anxiety about that has gone reduced a lot. Even now, when patients come to me, 
suspecting of uh, having had a virus or or of the COVID virus, or they suspect that, uh, or they have proven that they have got one, they isolate themselves. They stay at home. They don't go to work, and uh, mm-hmm. they don't socialize, and that also helps to minimize the spread of the virus. So there is a social change that has occurred, which hasn't unfortunately occurred with the flu virus, uh, which spreads much faster these days. Uh, but because the flu virus is much milder and it doesn't kill the average person as much as mm. it, the COVID used to, uh, people did not or do not have that habit. They still come to work with flu and then spread the flu to everyone else in the office or in the school or whatever. But uh, not so with COVID. That's uh, that's uh, now seen that there's a, there's a change in the way people think about it. Dr. Bhatti, and finally, do you think that people should carry on taking these COVID-19 booster vaccinations? I think so. For the time being, I think they should carry on, even though they've had a bad press. But they do build up. Uh, I mean, the vaccines have become safer. They do uh, give you immunity and they do protect. And the immunity seems to be uh, cross variants as well. So if you have been immune to one variant at the beginning, you're likely or more likely to have some sort of immunity against a new variant that comes up. So it's still a very much advisable to have the vaccine. I myself have had the vaccine. Uh, I think I've had the fourth shot. And all these concerns um, about the RNA uh, vaccine or uh, vaccine-related complications, um, how significant do you think they are? They are not as significant as they are made up because there is a big anti-vaccination propaganda machine out there. Mm -hmm. I would Mm -hmm. say propaganda machine because none of their uh, um, doomsday stories have come to fruition in their, in their language. So are you sure, Dr. Bhatti, that there's no chip inside the vaccine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. uh, no, I'm sure there's no chip. If it was, I would be fully controlled by the chip by now. <laughs> right. I, don't, I think that's, uh, that's uh, a very uh, far-fetched story. I don't think that's possible. Okay. Yes, right. So, a couple of uh, uh, sorry, Doctor Shikil. Yeah. All right. A uh, couple of more questions, actually, Doctor. But so, one is you mentioned that uh, the the vaccines have uh, have become more uh, more efficient as well. So, so have the vac- Has there been further development on the vaccines? Uh, because my impression was that it's really the same vaccines which were developed a couple of years ago, and they are being given as boosters. No, no. They changed that vaccine. Uh, they they changed the antigen. Uh, or the the change the um, the 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 the, uh, the antigen is the virus the bit of the virus that produces uh, the response that's the uh, thing that they change so it's not a, it's not exactly the same vaccine that was given three years ago two years ago it's uh, modified just like a, a flu virus is um, vaccine is modified every year that's uh, they have uh, made a change in that. So it's not exactly the same vaccine. It's on the same principle, though. It's the RNA vaccine. And it's uh, a, a very good development from that point of view that the uh, corona pa- pandemic has, the, uh, has allowed us to develop a, a way of ma- making vaccines which are much faster, 
speedier and safer. So that's one of the big benefits that we've had. And hopefully that will be translated into other conditions and diseases. Right. A slightly more technical question on uh, uh, on the vaccine itself. Do you think it's um, it, it's possible to to sort of look ahead in the world of uh, vaccine creation and um, and think about you know which which way the mutations are are heading, or are we always going to play a catch up game? No, it's always going to be a catch up game because we do not know which mutations you have many. And uh, only will become um, so uh, spreadable, I sh- that's the easiest way, common word to use, that the others will just die themselves off naturally. But there will be a few that will have this capacity to spread widely and speedily, and they will be able to infect the host, and the host will be able to accept the, the virus and then spread it. So we don't know which one will it be. Um, you can't predict it. You, you can predict it, but you can you cannot actually be very accurate with your prediction. Uh, you may say otherwise. We would be able to manufacture a vaccine beforehand before the virus comes up. But until it comes up, we don't know which one it will be. It's very much like the flu vaccine. You know, every year we assume that such and such mutation will occur, and that the virus we should produce the vaccine against. So that didn't always work. So now they make three or four predictions and they make a vaccine combined against three potential viruses. Right. There was an inquiry um, that was commissioned by the World Health Organization uh, around the origin of the virus in China. And because the story has actually died down completely in the media, the media is just not interested in in talking about COVID anymore. Did anything come out of that inquiry, or is that is that still going on? They were never quite able to establish where exactly it started from, um, and I think there is also political pressure that probably uh, stops this from being expressed fully. But they were thinking that it came from China, but there's no conclusive proof proof of that. Um, they think that it was because people were eating bats or something like that, so yeah. it uh, started off because the virus then crossed from bats to humans and so on. Um, or that there was a leak from a fridge or a freezer in Wuhan that started it off. But there's also a theory that it started some, in some other country entirely. So we are not we're not sure, really, uh, unless the world opens up completely mm-hmm. and the existing, if there was a virus that was uh, leaked from the freezer in Wuhan or some market that uh, where the bats were consumed from, if they get those viruses out and then genetically compare to the viruses that went on to spread all over the world, it's only then possible to exactly find out which, uh, what was the source of it. But I think it will be impossible, really. Uh, there's just too much political pressure, and also there's too much logistical pressure as well, um, because this the virus that spread was, has been found in many, many places, and you can't. Who knows which where was uh, which was the source? Right. 
Excellent. Thank you very, very much for that uh, detailed take on, on COVID. Um, you've certainly made us wise, and I'm sure you've made our listeners wise as well. Thank you very much, Dr. Shabir Bhatti, for your time. You are very welcome, sir. Peace be with you. Okay, Salaam alaikum. Peace be with you. So that was Dr. Shabir Bhatti, who is a practicing GP and has been practicing medicine since 1978 and currently practices uh, in Old Short, England. Uh, quite, um, uh, uh, quite a you know um, an important warning from Dr. Bhatti that this is not to be uh, to be totally ignored. This is something that we must be cognizant of and we must continue to take measures because people are still dying. Mm. Yes, that is um, the reality of it. And um, I would also say that we in neuropsychiatry saw the mental health aspect of it too. Sure. Um, a lot of anxiety syndromes, people getting depressed because of their loss of contact with their loved ones. And in, in a lot of cases, financial losses and restrictions on businesses, etc. We saw all that. You know. So um, there was that impact of COVID too. And I think that is one of the reasons why the government was under immense pressure to get the lockdown open up gradually and as soon as it is reasonably safe to do so. And so that's been uh, another aspect of COVID besides the physical health complications. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you very much for, for reminding us that. Absolutely. That was, I think, one of the uh, the major issues uh, during COVID. And again, you know, just because media just tends to uh, focus on the next big thing, uh, this story has totally died down in the media. Nobody wants to talk about it anymore, but it's very much there. It's very much around. And uh, uh, and I'm sure some people are still carrying the effects of um, uh, the, the mental uh, effects of that. They are, and they are attending our clinics. That is true. Mm. Uh, long-term mental health impacts of having suffered serious disease or having gone through uh, family dynamics which were changed due to COVID. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Thank you for that, uh, Dr. Shakil. Right. So um, we are coming up to the 8 o'clock news. Um uh, just a reminder of uh, what we've been talking about over the last uh, half an hour or so. So we've been talking about COVID, actually, and we've been talking about the changing nature of COVID. And we spoke um, with Dr. Shabir Bhatti, who has been practicing medicine since 1978. And um, he uh, mentioned that actually, uh, you know, about 30 to 40 people still die of COVID in the UK a week. Uh, so this is something which is very much around and therefore we must continue to take all precautions uh, like booster vaccines and not to mention washing our hands and um, and wearing masks. Uh, and and, and, uh, and I think, uh, you know, to that point, um, uh, our community has actually been at the, at the forefront of that. And we've, uh, uh, our mosques, uh, you know, many of our mosques still require our mask uh, to be worn. Um, His Holiness has been uh, the current head of the Ahmed Muslim community, has been Masood Ahmed, has been pretty um, strict about that, and he he um, he has been actually advising people to 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 wear masks. So this is something that has been taken very very um, seriously by the community, and still continues to be taken uh, taken seriously. I remember an incident from the time of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace be on him, that some of his followers traveled to a distant uh, city and then came back and said that people have got an infection and it's spreading amongst them 
and some of them are very seriously ill or may have even passed away. And the Holy Prophet, uh, may peace be on him, his instruction was that under those circumstances, people should avoid both traveling out of that city unless absolutely necessary and outsiders going into that city. So that was like an example of some kind of a movement restriction, a lockdown of some nature. 1400 years ago. 1400 years ago, (laughs) advised by the Prophet, may peace be on him. May peace be on him, absolutely. Really, thank you very much again for sharing that. Uh, right. Uh, so um, we will continue this discussion around COVID after the eight o'clock news. We will be speaking to another expert on uh, this topic as well. So do stay tuned. And then uh, in the second hour or in the second segment, we have uh, AI to talk about, which is artificial intelligence and the impact that that uh, is going to have both on education as well as uh, in other sectors as well. So we've got a back show today. Please do stay tuned. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from the South London studios of Voice of Islam. We are this um, this morning talking about COVID. And um, we were talking before we went on to the news break to Dr. Shapir Bhatti, um, uh, who mentioned quite a a few important facts. So the first was that uh, there's still people dying, um, the deaths happening um, uh, associated with COVID, and uh, also the fact that it's um, the people who are um, uh, who are at risk uh, um, uh, of COVID death are people who um, uh, either have an underlying condition such as diabetes and therefore are not very fit. He um, he also mentioned the importance of um, uh, of you know j- the basic activities that we were all uh, carrying out uh, very diligently during the COVID time, which is washing our hands, um, uh, making sure that um, uh, that we are um, we we keep ourselves um, uh, uh, we keep our masks face masks on as well. So, Doctor Shigil. Uh, in terms of uh, keeping ourselves fit and having a healthy lifestyle, so uh, in your area of uh, medicine as well, which is psychiatry, um, I would uh, I would think that there is a lot of importance attached to physical fitness as well. That is correct. Uh, physical exercise is very interesting, and the more and more research is coming out that shows that it doesn't only have physical health benefits, it also has mental health benefits. Um, And you are right that we were advising people to look after their physical health as well as their mental health during the COVID pressure years. So I I think it is still important that we look after our hygiene, we keep our houses clean, we look after eating healthy, doing regular physical exercise, getting adequate sleep, because once again, sleep on one hand is good for our physical health, but it is also good for our mental health, not to deprive ourselves of uh, sleep. Mm. People are generally in the habit of uh, disturbing their sleep cycle. They go to bed very late, then they find it hard to wake up in the morning at work time, and they're practically sleep deprived. The, The maximum mental and physical faculties are not on by the time they have to start working. Mm. So it's those kind of regularity of schedule and personal hygiene is very important. And looking at the Islamic way, we are instructed to have perform ablution, which is cleaning ourselves, our face, our hands, our uh, feet, uh, our noses and mouths 
five times before we say the obligatory prayers. So that also adds up to our self-hygiene. 100%. Um, uh, we we have our next guest, but I would want to come back to uh, this uh, this the importance of routine uh, with you. I think that's a, that's a very important point. But we do now have on the line um, uh, Professor Peter Openshaw, who is a professor of medicine at Imperial College London. He's a respiratory f- uh, physician and a past president of the British Society for Immunology. During the COVID pandemic, uh, pandemic, he was a member of Nerve Tag. He was made um, uh, commander of the British Empire, which is uh, uh, CBE, in 2022 for his contribution to scientific advisory work. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show, Professor. Well, thank you very much indeed for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be with you. Likewise. So, uh, so Professor, firstly, uh, t- can I ask you about NERFTAG? What, uh, uh, we've heard about COBRA, we've heard about uh, some of the other acronyms. Uh, NERFTAG, what was that? Yes, okay. It's, I suppose it's quite an appealing sort of uh, um, acronym. It was it was set up as a successor to the previous committee that I was on, which was called the Strategic Pandemic Influenza Committee. Mm-hmm. And I think it was realized some some years back that actually it wasn't just influenza we should be worried about. And nerve tag was, um, it, it's short for the New and Emerging Pathogens Advisory Committee, uh, advisory group. And it, um, it was basically a group of scientists who were handpicked by, um, by the people at the Department of Health to be able to provide advice across the board in terms of how to anticipate and plan for future um, pandemics and to keep an eye on the horizon. Excellent. You also created uh, uh, another acronym, which is Mosaic. So this Mosaic idea, which served as a model for a number of national and international studies. Tell us a bit more about that. Well, yes. So so in 2009, when we had the flu pandemic, it it was obvious to me and some other people, particularly people at the Wellcome Trust, that we needed to bring together all the different opinions and voices and expertise to try to understand what the pandemic was doing, not only in terms of looking at the virus itself, but also looking at the way in which people, people's bodies responded to the virus. Um, and so we put together really a, a, an assembly of all the talents that we could find. And I, and I phoned around different labs, <clears throat> friends in the UK, and, and managed to get 45 of my <clears throat> excuse me, and 45 of my colleagues to sign up to the concept that we needed to form this coalition supported by the Wellcome Trust called Mosaic. It was, you know, putting together a mosaic of all the different um, scientific talents so that together we could come up with a unified picture of what the virus was doing and, and what it was doing to us um, when it when it infected us. And I think it was a, it was very novel at the time to get this coalition together you know, coalitions can be a little bit more slow and cumbersome than just getting on with your own research, but on the other hand, have the potential to reveal so much more than just keeping your head down and studying a small population. Professor, um, yet another acronym comes in the next question. I-S-A-R-I-C. ISARIC 4C, I think. Yes. <laughs> yes, we and love you, we love our we love our, our <laughs> yes, so, yes. Right, so four C, and then you were also a senior investigator for the NIHR. So, if you can tell that's, us a little bit more correct. about this yes. work, please. Yes, 
Well, it was a great honour to be um, to be chosen as one of the NIHR senior investigators. I think one of the things that um, Sally Davis did when she was heading up the NHS was that she finally did commit a significant amount of the budget to um, to research and put that into setting up the National Institute for Healthcare Research, um, Health and Care Research now, the NIHR, and um, and chose a number of people to be senior investigators and those were not only us medics they were they were also people other people who had contributed so much um in terms of trying to make the nhs a great place to work and a supportive environment for the staff and and for the patients so that's nihr the isaric but so that was the um <clears throat> a consortium that we that we set up in the wake of the last flu pandemic which was really carried forward by some bright young investigators namely Callum Semple and, and Kenny Bailey and I, th I guess the three of us kept the concept of Mosaic alive but really we need to collaborate and to give of our best together in order to understand a pandemic and so Israel was really set up to be able to um, study future pandemics in the way in which we succeeded in doing it's very interesting for us to listen to these uh, academic and research side of things in relation to COVID because we were being bombarded with the clinical impact and the serious consequences of the infection. But um, here you are telling us about the research impact. Do you think you, you had enough supportive um, sort of a protocols or systems provided by the government and your institutions to carry on this research during those pressured times? It was a huge effort I, and I think everyone appreciated you know, from, the, from the point of view of people who are funding research that they had to move very, very fast indeed. You know, the Mosaic collaboration took too long to set up. I think one of the things we learned during 2009 was that you had to be very fast, very nimble and just make decisions and, and get the money out into the into the research centers so that they could they could start doing the research. We had a something like nine months delay um, during the flu pandemic before we could get the research going, and that was just too long. So I think during the COVID pandemic, all the um, all the funders got together and just threw money out to competent research um, departments, programs, units and said, get on, but collaborate. And I think that the importance of collaboration between scientific groups was absolutely at the fore. And sometimes it meant that people had to slightly hide their own egos and be generous, but that's a good thing in research. Thank you, Professor. Uh, where are we standing uh, today with uh, with COVID-19? Uh, do we treat it like, uh, you know, like a casual flu nowadays, or is there still any difference? And... Uh, how worried should we be about about this today? Well, it is different from flu. I think different viruses have different strategies, as you might say. You know, you can't really give them... It's not a strategy in the way in which an intelligent being would have a strategy, but in evolutionary terms, some viruses just get in and out quickly. They replicate and, and throw out new copies of their genome in new virus particles and then try to invade other hosts. Other viruses, mm -hmm. and I would include um, SARS-CoV-2 in this, get into the controls and 
of the of the immune system and try to steer it in directions that make the immune system less able to respond. And I think a lot of what we've seen with a rather complex disease that sometimes follows acute COVID in terms of you know what we're now calling long COVID hmm. can be a result of that rather um, complex and subtle behavior by the virus. Um, and we're still really trying to understand what causes long COVID and why for some people it's so devastating and trying to unpick the biology from the psychology and the sociology, which obviously has a big impact on the way in which people have responded to this to this pandemic is, is so important now. So with that in mind, Professor, what is your view whether people should keep getting on newer COVID-19 boosters, particularly those who are suffering from some underlying health conditions? It's a vital question. I mean, to my mind, we are, we do need to have boosters. We we know that um, that your vaccine mediated immunity does does drift down in time, and I'm delighted to have had my latest vaccine booster within within the last couple of months. Um, it's it's given me some assurance that if I do catch COVID, it will be milder than it would otherwise be and my recovery is likely to be more complete. Now, there is variable evidence on the amount of protection it gives you against long COVID, um, but I think you know, on balance, it does give you about a 40% protection, and that's really worth having. If you have long COVID, there are different studies um, showing that some people do improve after they've had the vaccine, but. Some people do actually get a bit worse, so it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a balance. If you if you're already experiencing prolonged symptoms, whether boosting your immune system is going to help or not is a difficult one to answer. And, you know, I think to me the balance is probably in favour of having the vaccine and um, and hoping that an improvement may may ensue. But you can't necessarily describe everything that you experience to the vaccine, whether it's positive or negative. Uh, we at the Voice of Islam Radio pray for your health, Professor. But just a personal question: In any of these booster vaccinations, did you get any uh, side effects from getting any any of these vaccinations? Well, with the first first time I was vaccinated, I do remember not feeling well at all for several weeks. I I was unable to go out jogging. I could only really. Do uh, do about a hundred yards before I had to stop and go back home again. With subsequent doses, actually, I've had really uh, nothing by way of side effects other than a slightly sore arm. But um, but you know, it is extraordinary that we managed to get such highly effective vaccines so quickly, which have saved so many millions of lives. Professor. Um we don't hear about COVID um, in the media anymore. They have certainly lost um, um, focus and certainly dropped uh, um, their guard on it. But is this something which is getting, you think, enough funding within the scientific community to continue research on on vaccines and, uh, and, and other things? Well, I would say as somebody who's been involved in vaccines for about 30 years, it, I've never seen such rapid progress in terms of being able to you know, think afresh about how to make effective vaccines and also to really understand how vaccines work and what their limitations are. You know, they don't necessarily have such a great impact on transmission, although they do help to some extent. 
but they really are having a much bigger effect in this context of, of preventing severe disease. We think we mustn't forget that there's still a lot of people infected with, with, with COVID out there. I mean, within the UK, it's probably a, over a million people actually have the virus currently. And we're still seeing over 300 deaths a week in the UK from people who are hospitalized with severe disease. Mostly, I'm afraid, people who who have not um, chosen to be vaccinated or who just haven't heard the news that vaccines are there, are available, and are um, over 80% effective at preventing severe disease due to COVID. So there's every reason to continue um, to ensure that everyone has vaccines available to them. Excellent, Professor. Thank you so very much, Professor. Such a pleasure to speak to you, um, uh, Professor. Uh, Imperial College London is uh, is is a place which is very close to a lot of uh, to uh, the hearts of many people within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Uh, there was one member of our community called Dr. Abdul Salam who uh, who studied and taught there, and uh, I I, uh, I gather I think the library has also recently been uh, named um, in his memory as well. Yes, it has, absolutely. And I'm so glad to hear you say that uh, Imperial is a welcoming place for for people of, of um, Islamic faith. Thank Excellent. You. Thank you so very much, Professor. Uh, have a lovely day. Peace be with you. Thank you so very much for joining us. Really a pleasure to speak to you. Yeah, and peace be with you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was uh, Professor Peter Openshaw, who is a professor of medicine at Imperial College London, right. Uh, again, I think reinforcing the few points that uh, that we've been uh, making earlier as well and Dr. Shabir Bhatti made as well, which is that um, number one, booster vaccines are very important. Um, we've still got to take this uh, seriously and we've still got to take all the uh, the precautions and, and good to know that, uh, you know, scientific work and research and development around vaccines is still going on around COVID. I found mm-hmm. that very interesting, in fact, that there was a lot of support and uh, the funders got together and let the researchers carry on their work as much as possible. And I think this kind of international collaboration is peace building Mm. instead of warmongering, (laughs) if I can say that. Mm. So this was a very beautiful example of the good side of humanity and people coming together to serve the cause of humanity uh, in a collective way. Yeah, great mm. point. Uh, you probably Absolutely. heard the saying that necessity is the mother of invention, but yeah. mm. uh, I, th- I think is that because uh, as um, the, pr- the professor mentioned that we've never seen such progress in vaccine in, in such a short time. I think we've never seen a, a plague or a pandemic like COVID in, in, in history, which literally the whole world was frozen, stopped, locked down. Mm. And people, I mean, if you told this uh, uh, to anyone in the future, they will be like, how How did you survive that? How did you manage yeah. three years mm-hmm. staying at home, doing nothing? Correct, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it'll be quite a quite a story to tell. And also in, the, in terms of the vaccine, just one more point. Um, yeah. uh, in, in the time of the promised Messiah, um, peace be upon him, uh, there was also a plague, um, which was part of a prophecy. But even at that time, the promised Messiah uh, emphasized on the importance of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. He said that so much so that uh, somebody who does not take the vaccine, he is, um, you know, committing a grave error uh, mm-hmm. because the government is do- doing so much to help the people. It's providing providing the vaccine. 
So you should make every eff- effort to take that vaccine because it's a uh, it's it's for your own benefit. However, because of uh, the guidance of God Almighty, um, the promised Messiah and his community were promised, and that was to serve as a sign of his truthfulness. They were promised that who is ever whoever is uh, among your household, whoever is among your under your umbrella, uh, I mean, meaning that whoever follows you and believes in you, he will be protected from this plague. And uh, that's why under divine instruction, the promised Messiah was not allowed to take the vaccine to show the people that um, God Almighty is ultimately the protector, not the vaccine. But he encouraged uh, and actually commanded all the people to take the vaccine. But because of divine instruction, he was not allowed in his community. They were not supposed to take the vaccine. That was just to show the, the sign of truthfulness. But it, in today's age, we don't have this divine um, you know, restriction. Mm. So uh, even Ahmadis and His Holiness, Mirza Masur Ahmed, he was a very strong advocate for the vaccine. And uh, as, as we've heard from the experts, I mean, that, that definitely helped. Absolutely. And a you know, great point there, uh, made. And also, I think, uh, going back to the earlier point that you made, Dr. Shakil, about uh, uh, is something akin to a lockdown happening, 1400, being advised by the Holy Prophet of Islam, the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, 1400 years ago, where he advised people not to leave the city or, or, or not um, other people to come into a city. You know, that, that shows the importance of taking precautions and uh, um, and and. Um, uh, not only the importance of scientific work, as 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 you were saying around vaccinations, Doctor uh, Imam Anand, but also the importance of um, uh, of just taking common sense precautions. Yes, absolutely, and I I think I like the point that Imam Manan has made because the Prophet Messiah Salam was giving us very beautiful guiding principle in this. Hmm. He was asking us that, look, on one hand is the scientific pursuit of knowledge and application of this scientific pursuit on this knowledge for betterment of mankind, Hmm. where was the vaccine for the plague and here the vaccine for COVID. But on the other hand, do not think that the sole healer is science and our knowledge, Hmm. that there is a higher being, there is a higher authority, God, that we can supplicate to. And we can also benefit from his mercy and protection of our health. So this is the combination that we as Ahmadi Muslims um, carry with us in terms of approach to life, as well as then um, try to share it with fellow human beings for their benefit. Absolutely. Thank you very much for that. And that uh, helps us, uh, brings us to uh, towards the conclusion of this topic, which was about COVID and uh, um yeah, I mean, the more you discuss it, the more uh, you find out how important it was, uh, it is to still talk about COVID, uh, because as we mentioned earlier, lives are still being lost because of um, um, uh, this uh, this pandemic, which uh, which in a way um, still continues, and there's still a lot of scientific work which uh, is still happening around it. Right, uh, moving stif- swiftly on to our second topic, which is around artificial intelligence. So. Um, Artificial intelligence um, and their growing calls um, for schools to teach pupils as well about artificial intelligence. Uh, BBC Young Reporters um, have been looking at its risks and potential and asked their uh, classmates how they used to try to sharpen up their homework. 
And AI has found several successful uses in education, ranging from tasks like assisting with translation and language and learning. Uh, Imam Anan, would you like to uh, introduce us to this uh, topic? Yes, as you mentioned that um, AI is a powerful tool um, and um, it's very powerful for the students, especially with the new, with I think this, this uh, kind of uh, spark, which was Ch- ChatGPT, uh, one of the most powerful tools, most useful tools in in the, in the recent um, you know um, recent time, and um, students have obviously um, just like with anything else, they use it for good things and bad things. I mean, there's pros and cons, and at the end of the day, it depends on your intention what you, what you're using it for. But uh, this this research which uh, which was conducted by these young students themselves. Uh, was that um, a lot of students used uh, AI tools for cheating, but a lot of them mentioned that uh, the artificial intelligence actually helped them to improve their studies. Uh, for example, the absence of a teacher, um, you, you have a question and sometimes you can't find the answer. You don't know how to ask that question. And then AI can uh, help you in that regard. It can give you uh, some guidance on where to go, which perspective to take. Um, and that, that way you can, uh, you know, you, you're not stuck on one thing. Um, the survey of uh, 500 secondary school teachers revealed that 41% believe there needs to be better regulation of AI, with 30, uh, 31% wanting the government to step in to police its use. So AI is becoming, uh, you know, part of our life now. Um, people have to adapt to it. Hmm. I think usually the older people, the older generation have difficulty um, you know, the, for example, social media, using phones, internet, but even they're catching up now. But we have to, everyone has to move forward and we have to understand how AI works and we have to utilize it, I think. Um, instead of saying that, um, you know, there's two extremes that everyone, mm-hmm. some, some people only use AI for everything, uh, for cheating, everything, for bad things, good <laughs> things. Some people completely stay away from it. They say, oh, this is just... It has, a, you know, it has no benefit. So we have to use AI, in my opinion. We need to utilize it and use it for the betterment of the world and for, um, for you know, increasing our benefits. Um, and uh, as the research here and the, or the survey has shown as well that uh, it benefited a lot of people. But again, it's it's a very early stage. It's, it's, there's a lot of harmful um, aspects of it and the government needs to step in to regulate it. Absolutely, yeah. There has been a uh, call around the world, actually, to regulate AI. Right, so we now have our next guest on the line, which is uh, Ms. Saika Bhattan, who is a primary school teacher and currently teaching a year three class at Smallwood Primary School and Language Unit. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. Uh, Ms. Saika Manan, are you there? Assalamu uh, alaikum. Yeah, I am. Great. How are you today? I'm good, alhamdulillah. How are you? Good as well. Thank you very much. So, as you've been listening, we we are talking about AI and in, in, in education especially. Uh, but uh, I think before we go to the AI part, um, we, we want to know a little bit about the younger children. Um, I assume children don't use AI in, in in primary school, do they? Um, I know AI is usually like used by older, older children, like uni students, for like their essays and things like that. But actually. AI is um, used quite frequently in primary schools now, like the use is becoming quite heavy, not mm-hmm. a direct use, like they might not know they're using AI, but um, just to improve their learning, like especially um, children with like special needs. Okay. There is lots of, there's, there's lots of tools that have now started coming out 
um, that can that can help personalize their learning mm-hmm. um, in a way that's making it accessible to all children across the curriculum. Mm-hmm. So, like for example, in my school already, I've got like children. Um, I'm a year three teacher, by the way, so they're quite young children. But there are children who, because there's different learning needs, it might be dyslexia, ADHD, whatever. Um, they might not be able to actually access, let's say, handwriting, writing. And so because of these kind of struggles, they might fall behind compared to other children just because they don't have that physical accessibility to the learning. Mm. And so we'll use things like um, like um, audio devices and like speech and language um, devices that can help them um, basically mm-hmm. access that same learning that they might not be able to access without the technology to help them. Um, even typing, like typewriters. Um, now we've got like this device at school where children are able to speak into a microphone and that will um, type up the text for them. Um, there are dangers to it, of course, like children need to be learning how to write and things like that. But some children are always going to struggle with it and will always kind of be a step behind everybody else. Yes, um, so very interesting. Quite a uh, lot. Yeah, very interesting uh, points that uh, you know we for us AI we understand to be very advanced, even though we forget that simple um, uh, voice to speech um, tools are AI as well. Um, you know, you speak and then yeah. it types up. Yeah, even things like children, like let's say children who might struggle to write now and can learn later on. What about children who might not be able to see? Children who are visually impaired. So there are tools for those children. Um, where there, there's tools for them to be reading out passages to them. So it kind of makes learning accessible to all the children across the curriculum um, in a way when it comes to younger children. Yes, definitely. And what about teachers? Um, uh, how, how, is, how helpful is AI tools for teachers? Um, are, t- are teachers using it nowadays? I, I assume it's, it must be much easier with the AI um, making your your work easier. So, uh, yeah. how, do you use AI? How do you how do you prepare your lessons, for example? I I can't speak for all children. Uh, sorry, not children. I can't speak for all teachers. But I know that recently I've had a go at AI when it comes to lesson planning, for example. Like, I think if there's one thing anyone knows about teachers, how it's how heavy their workload is because they're basically doing all sorts of things. It's not just about teaching a lesson. You're then planning the lesson. You're marking the work. You're um, creating personalized learning plans for children. You, you're writing, like, forms for children for whatever needs they have. So for me, personally, I've actually had a go at using AI tools to help me create, like, lesson seeds. So it'll, it'll plan out your lesson for you, like a very rough structure. But then I think it's very important to then look edit from like a humanistic approach mm-hmm. where you can't fully rely on uh, AI as well. I do think the benefits are huge. If there is so much planning done by so many different teachers across the world already, why not use that knowledge and that's gathered? Why kind of waste that time planning when that time could be used in a different way, especially for teachers? Time is <laughs> time is very, like, it, it, <laughs> it's an essence to them, you know? Um, so yes. it's been very useful to me. Like I've had lessons that will take me two hours to plan and that's been reduced to 20 minutes, 30 minutes because I've kind of had like somewhere to start off from. I've been given so many ideas and then I can make sure to use these ideas and I, because I know my children, obviously the AI tool does not know my children as per- mm. as personally as I do. So I can then take that and personalize it to my class. And I think lots of teachers actually around the world could take lo- advantage of it. And if anything, it's it's a tool for us to kind of share share different strategies because as a teacher you're i think one thing is you're always learning you're learning with the children there are always new new um 
ways to teach more eff- eff- effectively and you you won't always have the time to read up on it and read like you know kind of studies on things so I think that's a great way to um, help reduce workload like marking it, it can be very helpful especially at, um, I think I'm a primary school teacher but I can imagine at secondary school level or university degree level when there are lots and lots of essays that are being typed up um, I know there are lots of tools that can create like you know like marking tools Mm. that can probably be more effective at marking than a human being because they might pick up on errors that you might not pick up with your naked eye. Yeah, I think maybe we'll see this in the future. That brings me to your, to the last question. Uh, do you think AI will ever replace teachers? Can can that happen? I don't think so. I, I hope not. I don't think it's actually possible because <laughs> being in a classroom, I think you realise I have like 30 children, 30 children that are completely different with completely different minds, completely different needs. And an AI tool will just simply not be able to adapt to that because an AI tool at the end of the day is a tool created by people, you know, and it's not going to be able to such an intimate level form, like let's say relationships with children, like in in teaching, forming relationships is such an integral part of teaching. I don't think you could be meeting all the needs of all the children if you're not really personalizing your relationships your teaching their learning um I, I think there's too much intricacy for it to be turned into like a i don't know ai thing yeah great thank you very much like that was a really a really a great pleasure speaking to you and you you put it really really uh, really well i think understanding the importance of ai um, even though we thought that younger children don't use it, uh, it's, uh, at least I thought so. <laughs> but uh, you, um, you clarified this uh, really well. But thank you for uh, coming on our show, and uh, I hope you have a great day. Thank you. You too. Salam alaikum. Thank you. Bye bye. Salam Right. Thank you uh, for going to that interview, Imam Anand. Uh, let me go, go straight now to our last guest uh, for the morning, which is uh, uh, Professor Mike. Sharples. Mike Sharples is Emeritus Professor or Emeritus Professor of uh, Education Technology at the Open University in the UK. He has a PhD from the Department of Artificial Intelligence, University of Edinburgh on Cognition, Computers and Creative Writing. Assalamualaikum, peace be with you. A warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you very much. So, Professor, uh, my first question would be, should, should AI, in your opinion, be regulated? Um, Yes, I think it should. Uh, Like any other new technology, uh, it has its strengths and its weaknesses, and we need to develop its strengths, and we need to be very careful about its weaknesses. So there needs to be some regulation of AI, uh, particularly uh, in order to be able to protect young people um, from some of the excesses of AI, um, particularly about... um, use on the, the World Wide Web and social media uh, of um, promoting false information. But we also need to recognize its real strengths. It's a tool for creativity. Should we be scared of it? I don't think we should be scared of it. Um, so I think it's a bit similar to when the World Wide Web started up uh, oh. and uh, websites so uh, you know, it was a very new technology when websites started up in the, the mid-1990s, uh, and then they just became you know, ubiquitous. Uh, they were part of everyday life, and AI is going to be like that. It's going to be embedded into everyday life. There are going to be scary aspects, just like the scary aspects of, of the web, and particularly with social media. 
but we need to recognize what they are and we need to deal with them, which is why we really need an AI literacy program at the moment. That's absolutely essential. It's not just about knowing what the technology is, but how to use it carefully and safely. Professor Sharples, given your background in educational technology, could you share with us some examples of successful AI applications that have helped students' engagement and their understanding and learning of knowledge of new subjects? Yes, sure. Um, So I think the main thing to say is that this new generative AI is a tool for creativity. And so it can help in many areas of creativity. so one example is that it can act as a personal tutor on any topic now from calculus to creative writing it can be an opponent in an argument it could be an aid to design it can act as a data analyst and particularly students who are not native english speakers it can provide machine translation Uh, a student could write a draft of an assignment in their own language and then get it translated into english so they can focus on the ideas and the structure and let AI take care of the, the style and the surface structure of the text. And it can be a tool for, for design. So let's say students are working together on a project to reduce energy use in school. It could help them to brainstorm ideas, to critique designs, to test solutions, to analyze data. It's a general purpose tool to support design and creativity. And in your, you've authored a, a very fascinating book, Story Machines, How Computers Have Become Creative Writers. And in this book, you talk about creative aspect of AI. So can you please elaborate how this is influencing our creative processes and is it taking us in a, in a constructive direction? Uh, so uh, an analogy I would give is with meteorologists. So a meteorologist has models of weather patterns and can use them to make weather forecasts or to explore effects of climate change. With generative AI, we now have models, for example, of story writing. So we can explore um, different plots and characters and endings. So um, students who just see writing as being just a sort of linear process Uh, of putting one word after the next, can now use AI to explore different ways of writing. Just as a meteorologist can explore what um, the effects of climate change, uh, 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 with AI, a student can explore creative writing. Uh, I've got a colleague who's working on developing a program that will generate uh, myths about Mexico, called Mexica. And... uh, Every time he develops this program, he understands more about the creative writing process. So it's a, it's a creative tool. So how do we understand the overlap between the computer being creative and not the student? Absolutely. And that's a real issue. So if it, it has to be an aid to creativity, not a substitute. If it takes over... Uh, And we're seeing this a bit with, for instance, generating images. So uh, AI can now generate really realistic photos. And if you just use it to say, okay, we're going to let AI become uh, a graphic artist or let AI develop our websites for us, they're going to be very bland and boring. We've got to use it as a, a support. 
support for human creativity. We're still much better than AI in terms of the variety, the breadth of our creativity. We have to use AI as a tool to help us, not to replace us. I want to ask you, staying on the same subject of human versus machine Mm. creativity, there's something that we value, all of us, which is the value of truth. Now, what if what AI is producing is not based on reality and truth and, and therefore beginning to make us think in a less true way and therefore not as constructive or helpful, if you understand what I mean? I certainly understand what you mean. And I think it's really important, which is that uh, the new generative AI, it's uh, a... It's a system that is a language um, model. It's, it generates language. It doesn't have a model of how the world works. In human terms, it's kind of amoral. And it's uncaring. It doesn't have the human experience. And so it's really important that if you use it in education, for instance, you use it along with a human teacher. Human teachers... You know, Education is caring. Human teachers are caring people, and they need to bring that human care, that human experience to it. So you can work alongside AI, but you really have to recognize that AI is fundamentally uncaring. It's fundamentally amoral. It doesn't have any uh, inherent inbuilt truth. And so we need, as humans, to find that truth. We need to be very careful about how we use it. Just as with the web at the moment, with social media, there is no inbuilt truth into it. We need to work as experts, uh, as um, researchers, as teachers, to find that truth and to communicate and to explain it to students. So it's students and teachers and AI working alongside each other, but not substituting. Right. Um, Our previous guest had a similar view Um, in terms of AI being a useful tool to support our human effort into education, she being a primary school teacher. Um, Professor, so are you then supporting the idea of uh, regulation being an important part in in a constructive use of AI going forward? Yes, I am, particularly for young children. Because AI is going to be embedded into the tools that we use. Microsoft is already doing that with something called Microsoft Copilot. It will be there as part of the word processors we use, the spreadsheets, um, the, uh, the graphic tools that we use. And I think what we really need to make clear is firstly about copyright, that it shouldn't be taking other people's work and uh, just representing it without giving them credit. That's the first thing. And secondly, um, I think it needs to be regulated around what you've been talking about, around truth. Uh, And so uh, there need to be guardrails put on so that it doesn't spout nonsense, uh, so that it doesn't promote conspiracy theories. And it's possible to do that. It's possible to develop ethical AI systems. There's a company called Anthropic that has developed a generative AI tool that's based on ethical principles. It's based on the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, for example. And it's built the design of the system. 
And we really need to make choices about adopting more ethical AI. So it's not just about regulating. It's also about making ethical choices for choosing good ethical-based AI. And that's already possible. I like your expression uh, about um, making use of the ethical AI mm. rather than just AI. I, I really appreciate that comment. Lastly, Professor Sharples, um, is your are you in some ways involved in, uh, in emphasizing on the government to legislate so that appropriate regulation then can be put into place? Because already we see AI being around us in so many ways and it's progressed very rapidly. I don't have a direct link into to government. I've been mainly working with universities and schools and with a few uh, other agencies like the National Archives on how you can use AI appropriately. So that, that's been my mission, if you like, for the, for the last year, is about appropriate use of AI and offering case studies, examples, and I've given you some examples, for example, of using it for, for language learning. Um, so I, I, I think it's two sides. You need to have appropriate guardrails, but you also need to explore the appropriate and ethical use, and that's been my uh, my mission, my uh, aim. So I hope I've had some influence on government. Um, I know that uh, some of the Department for Education, for instance, I've had some dealings with, but uh, and I hope that that emphasis on appropriate and ethical use of AI uh, is going to be put in alongside the guardrails and the constraints. Professor Mike Sharples, thank you so very much for joining us uh, this early Monday morning um, and, and and starting our week with this um, uh, with this up-and-coming topic. Uh, really appreciate your input. Uh, have a lovely day and the rest of the week. Peace be with you. Peace be with you too. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. So that was uh, Professor Mike Sharples, who is Emeritus Professor of Education Technology at the Open University UK. Right, so we are coming up um, uh, to the 9 o'clock news, uh, which uh, will bring our program to a close. But before we do that, uh, Imam Usman Milan, what, uh, you know, Professor Sharples also talked about the, uh, the importance of balancing scientific progress with ethical needs. Um, what's the Islamic teaching around that? Yes, uh, um, as Dr. Skeel also pointed out, he, he kept using ethical, which is, a, I think, very it's a very key factor in, in artificial in intelligence, which it's actually missing. And, uh, um, I mean, in artificial intelligence, <laughs> I, I read a quote as neither artificial nor intelligent, because uh, <laughs> it's made up by humans, and uh, it, it doesn't sometimes doesn't yeah, give you the answer. It certainly can be need. that way, yes. So, uh, <laughs> yes, in that, that regard... Um, AI, um, also the, our guest earlier, I mentioned that it can't replace teachers, it can't replace human beings. Mm. But uh, the, the the reason for AI, what we use it for, is you know to replace things. So if we can replace it to some extent, which is, um, I think, uh, um, uh, factual things, or it can check an essay for you, mm. but it can't give you um, answers to questions right. which we need in our life. Now, in Islam, we know that the, the purpose of our life is to worship God Almighty. Um, and uh, everyone has a purpose in life. And the, the purpose, the ultimate purpose of human beings uh, is this, that you, you worship God and uh, you work, you, you fulfill the rights of uh, your fellow human beings. This is something which can uh, satisfy you completely. 
And how can AI help us in this purpose? Now, if, if you ask AI this simple question that um, how can I go to heaven, for example, <laughs> uh, it, the AI, AI doesn't have... Uh, an understanding of heaven as, as doesn't have that intelligence exactly <laughs> I mean it, it's it for example intelligence intelligence can't take you to heaven alone mm. right so that's why if you rely on AI to give us an answer for this question they will uh, AI what what it can do is pick out some quotes from different scriptures yeah. um, there was an example for example um, somebody did type in heaven tell me about heaven and uh, what that is uh, system did that it picked up some quotes which mentioned the word heaven in it mm. and just presented it and th- this is what heaven is even though the the understanding of that heaven might be different to uh, the Christians uh, compared to the Muslims okay and then another example of uh, the flaw it has um, the, the human intellect it's missing is that uh, one uh, there was a person who put in the question um, does Israel uh, sorry, is, does does Palestine deserve to be free? Yeah. The uh, the the AI gave obviously because that's, uh, the answer comes from various sources. The answer was that uh, it's a very political issue. There is very com- a lot of complications in this. He got a very roundabout answer. Yes. To that and question, when yes. it was asked about does Israel deserve to be free, then it was a yes as very all, direct answer. All yes. human beings have the right. So obviously, it's not the fault of the of yeah, the AI it's, system. It's, it's what's there. It's what humans have fed it. Yes. So if we take this to to Islam, uh, as our purpose is to to the worship of God and and uh, increasing. Uh, also in our knowledge and, and, and understanding of God Almighty, AI can can't bring us to that to that place because AI is something physical. But what we need is is for our soul is spirituality, and I think this is the biggest uh, leak or b- biggest lack of um, something that AI needs is spirituality, and that's something which I think it will never re- attain. So in in that regard. It, we, we, we can use AI to, for example, um, increase our knowledge about something. Mm. But we can't use it to increase our spirituality to uh, move forward in life. And uh, this is where the, I think the ethical use um, comes in, that um, AI does not understand uh, the, the ethics. Uh, you can't apply the same principle on every situation. Uh, you, need to underst- you need to listen to the person, understand the condition, the... The uh, the condition it's in, and then you need to give an answer appropriately. Maybe in the future, um, even AI can reach that stage. Um, but I think I, I don't think so. That it doesn't matter how much we advance. It actually reminds me of um, I don't remember the name of the book. There was a book which argued that if since everything in the world works on algorithms, if those algorithms are perfected to such extent that we we know every single step to take to avoid diseases, mm. to avoid uh, any depression. Um, can we, can we, you know, live forever? For example, we yeah. we, we can figure out um, through algorithms when a person will die, and then we can avoid it. So, if we perfect those alg- algorithms, what is the future looking like? And I asked this question to one of my teachers, and he said that uh, yes, in theory, it sounds very great, but I'll tell you that this this stage will never be reached They're, because algorithms you, you can't perfect them and the reason for that is, is our our own um, restricted knowledge the only the only perfect knowledge um, if anyone could do this is God Almighty and I think he already has his plan he already has set algorithms for us to um, go to a certain uh, place and that is um, 
the, the worship of God sure. Almighty. Yes, Dr. Uh, you know, uh, thank you, Imam Munan, for those thoughts, uh, very pertinent ones. What I, I think is that when the World Wide Web started or the social media started, everybody had a huge positive outlook that, look, now the world's going to be connected, our mm. sources of information are going to be great. But then Absolutely. what we, in fact, have seen is that it the the validity, the ethnic, uh, ethical aspect of it depends on the writer who's putting the information onto those social exactly. media and the mm. World Wide Web. Yeah. Now, the same is likely to happen to artificial intelligence, Correct. that at the moment it's early stages, but once it is uh, become a common day um, tool and people have access to putting information that then feeds into the AI, then that's the information we're going to have. So in fact, it could become more dangerous just like we now recognize the dangers of the social media or the algorithms mm -hmm. that you're talking about, the, the way the social media uses these algorithms to influence our minds. Yes. And what it tells me is that in fact, it is the human story of human psyche, and you touched on the, the aspect of spirituality, which in fact ultimately it becomes. We as humans fall short unless we have uh, s created a huge amount of self-discipline in ourselves to stick to the truth mm. and fairness. Mm -hmm. Now, all of us are weak, and we, this is a long, lifelong journey that we need to carry on to reach that stage that whatever may be, I'm going to stick to truth and fairness and justice. Right. And that comes not through uh, prejudice, not through vested interest, or not through greed, which is the source of all the malinformation that comes on social media right. and is likely mm -hmm. to come on artificial intelligence. I don't want to be a science skeptic, yeah. and that's not what I'm trying to be. Sure. In fact, I'm all for this progress. Right. But like Professor Sharples was making yeah. a point, that uh, we need to have some kind of ethical aspect of it, just like Ms. Manan was this, the, our teacher guest was speaking about that uh, we need the human touch to it. And that's where spirituality comes in. Excellent points there, gentlemen. Thank you very much. And that was our show uh, this morning. Thank you so very much for joining us. I must thank our producers and the entire team.